Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're, we're going to take kind of a general overview of an understanding of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Um, you know that the four passion narratives all differ in some ways from one another, and it just simply reaffirms once again the fact that the telling of the narrative concerning the life and the sacrifice of Christ were not written in contemporary historical terms at all, but were written as as uh, narratives of eyewitnesses to particular and differing communities throughout the ancient Middle East, and um, also that they are structuring their story in such a way that it communicates the deepest meanings of what they understand and what they experienced as as part of this um, narrative. So that when we say, well, you know, there's differences in the narratives and there's differences even in the timing of the final meal between the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the Gospel of John, so what what we what we do in here then is not look to nitpick from a contemporary historical point of view but to enter into the spirit of the narratives which in fact is a retelling of something that was experienced in Mar- in Mark's case um probably probably from the the charisma of St Peter and in Luke's case probably from the charisma of St Paul but nevertheless um, they're recalling the apostolic experience. And I, and I think that it's important for us to understand that because you get a lot of skepticism about the, the scriptures and about the New Testament, especially um, because there's oftentimes chronological discrepancies and geographical discrepancies. And, and I think that in, in so many ways, we have a tendency to do that, to judge um, the, what we consider to be the inadequacy of the past. But I wonder, too, um, when we listen to contemporary narratives, how many versions of the story do we get? Um, how many versions of the news do we get? It depends which channel you turn to. And uh, they all have something. They're trying not to communicate the facts. They're not trying to communicate really the news anymore. What they're trying to do is, is, is communicate an ideology through the use of contemporary events and the use of contemporary news. Well, the apostles did similar, but not for ideological reasons, but for charismatic reasons, for catechetical reasons, for preaching reasons. Because what they wanted to do is communicate the events in such a way as to sustain and support the faith of the people. They don't make it up as they go along. They certainly don't. But they interpret the actual events through different lenses and different prisms. And if we choose then to be intolerant of that kind of methodology, we should be very intolerant of the world in which we live. Because there is, again... There is no sense of communicating the facts um, in the contemporary media. There is only an attempt to communicate the ideology and to use that ideology to form people's minds and thoughts and consciences. 
So basically, the work of the evangelists is much more benevolent than the modern ideological struggles. And it is benevolent because what it tries to do is to, in different plays and different ways, through different witnesses, trying to tell the real story, the story that underlies the, uh, the narrative. And you know, and Christianity has, has always struggled with this. It is the origin of, of the word mystic. The uh, word in the New Testament is mysterion, that St. Paul uses. But what they do, what they understand, for instance, is that beyond the narrative, beneath the narrative, within the narrative, there, there lurks a deeper truth and a deeper secret. And that secret is Jesus Christ. The fathers of the church use that in the interpretation of the Old Testament. And for them, the mystery of the Old Testament was the presence of Jesus throughout it that is not known. It is, it, it, it is a secret, in fact. It is not known until the New Testament appears, which therefore is the effective, for the early church fathers, the effective interpretive tool of the Old Testament. They see the same thing in the liturgy and in the sacraments, that underlying it all is the real presence of Jesus Christ. And so that which originally the word mystical meant exactly that, seeing the deeper inner underlying truth of things that we might not yet understand until they are brought further to light by the, by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, or by actually the experience of encountering Jesus Christ in, in those mom, final moment of our lives. So that the, for the fathers, the mystical was the secret that underlay the Old Testament, all the sacraments, and the church itself. Um, <clears throat> that came, of course, to be developed into a kind of different kind of knowledge, an experiential knowledge, um, is, is how the mystical worked its way into the Middle Ages and certainly into the earlier modern period and certainly into our own, that it is a, a combination of knowledge and experience. And uh, we, we see that, for instance, in, uh, in people who are, you know, obviously mystical characters, Padre Pio, and, uh, and, and many, many of the others, and some accepted and some still on the margins. Um, I know the Passion of the Christ, a great deal of the narrative was built on the visions of Anne Catherine Emmerich, who has been kind of, whose visions have kind of, while they're, while they're controversial, have still kind of been accepted by the church. So, <clears throat> so we're, what we're dealing with then is we're dealing with the deep mysteries of the reality, of the truth of reality itself. Reality itself is that which comes forth from the hand of God. And that means the whole created order, the whole cosmos. But the underlying reality of that phenomenon is in fact the presence of the divine, the presence of God in the actions and the working of the Lord. So that as we enter into this passion narrative by St. Luke, what we're entering into then is, is, an, is an understanding of what has happened. And it is based on the eyewitness accounts of those who were present. <clears throat> but we also know in the whole idea, for instance, even of, of uh, cognitive psychology, that eyewitnesses don't always see exactly the same thing in the same way. 
that it's it's filtered through them as human persons, through their consciousness and through their own experience. We also know that Jesus chose it to come that to us that way, that he chose it to come to us through humanity, through human persons, hence the 12 apostles, whose task was to... Uh, to witness, to grasp, and to communicate the saving message, the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we're encountering and what we're entering into when we enter into the story of the Passion of the Lord is, of course, that very phenomenon that Jesus is saving us and he's telling and his apostles through their charisma and through their, their disciples, their pupils, are telling us exactly Um, what the truth of the matter is. And if you take all of the Gospels together, despite their discrepancies, the fundamental message is always the same. That, uh, for instance, there was a a ritual meal, be it Passover or otherwise, um, because John does not see it as a Passover meal, but sees it as a ritual meal, obviously. And uh, there's all sorts of arguments about why there's a discrepancy and whether it's actually the Passover or not, or simply a Passover type of meal. And uh, we can argue with that about that, and scholars certainly have for, for a very long time. But <clears throat> without coming to an absolute answer, we can choose one of the resolutions, one of the solutions. Um, I know that in modern scripture scholars scholarship, um, in the when it, as it kind of exploded into the Catholic world in the mid twentieth century, that there was a great deal of speculation about the difference being between the Synoptics and John being the use of a, of a different calendars, and there was great speculation that John might have used the Qumran calendar, whereas the uh, the Synoptics used the calendar. Um, that was common to Jerusalem at the time. Um, But commentators don't find that a satisfactory argument usually, um, although some do, and uh, they find it maybe as a convenient argument. But what John does is put the crucifixion of Christ at exactly the same time as the slaughtering of the Passover lamb. And, uh, And that seems, therefore, maybe to be the most authentic understanding of the uh, of the the death of Jesus, so we go now into the narrative itself, and uh, and in that narrative itself, what we see is the beginning in Luke of when the hour came, Jesus took his place at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, "I have longed to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, because I tell you, I shall not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God." And then Luke goes into the story of the institution of the Eucharist. And in the story of the Eucharist, institution of the Eucharist, there are some very clear and and very, very poignant statements. And that is, take this and share it among you, because from now on I tell you I shall not drink wine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took some bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which will be given up for you. Do this in memory of me. He did the same with the cup after the supper and said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which will be poured out for you. 
And, uh, and so there we have the fundamental institution of the sacrament of the Eucharist. We know that Hebrew language makes a much deeper association between word and reality than we do in our language. And that therefore they, they, uh, they spoke concretely. Um, we can speak abstractly or we can speak in some ways that kind of indicate what we're talking about without ever really saying it. The Hebrews can't really do that. And the ancient Hebrews, I don't know about modern Hebrew, but the ancient Hebrews did not do that. Word and thing were identical, which is why they could never say the sacred, ma- the sacred name of God, because if they did, it meant they had some kind of possession over it, and they could not possess the living God. It's also true why names were so important in the Bible. It's because they indicated the reality, the truth of the person. If you recall at the Annunciation, the angel says, you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And uh, he ends up being called Jesus, which means Yahweh is with us. And um, so he, his name, therefore, is, is ordered by the angelic hosts in order to indicate the truth of who he is as a person. And there is therefore a concrete relationship between the name of Jesus and the truth of Jesus, of who he is, of the reality of who he is. And so what we have now then is getting into all of the issues that come along with the, with the Last Supper, including the betrayal of uh, Judas. And um, so then we, we go on from that into where then he... he uh, he goes. He leaves the upper room, and and he goes. And after having some instructions, it's here where he says, um, "If you have a haversack, do the same. And if you have, but if you have a purse, um, you have no sword. Sell your cloak and buy one, because I tell you the words of Scripture here to be fulfilled to me in me." He let himself be taken for a criminal. Yes, what Scripture says about me is even now reaching its fulfillment. And so he's, he's instructing them, he's telling them what's going to happen. He's already identified Judas as the one who is to betray him. And then he leaves the upper room and he goes to the Mount of Olives and with the disciples following him. And when they reached the place, he said to them, pray not to be put to the test. And then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away and knelt down and prayed, saying. And this is where we see the human Jesus struggling with the truth of the divinity of the divinity that is that is him as person and he says to the father if you are willing take this cup away from me nevertheless that your will be done and not mine the absolute surrender of his will to the father even though he knows the dreaded consequences that are to take place Um, then but i think the underlying reality of this whole story is something that that we have to take we have to take a close look at. The question is, why is he doing this? At any time, he could have fled. At any time, he could have, he could have when they bring him before Pilate, um, uh, when, they, when they bring him before Pilate, they, he could have easily defended himself. And yet, he didn't defend himself. And in not defending himself then, he submitted in some ways to this terrible, cruel, kind of vicious, kind of uh, uh, torture and eventually death 
that uh, that he wasn't necessary, which means Jesus was not forced to go through the passion in, to redeem us. It was the way of redemption. And a lot of times, you know, we get into, for instance, in St. Anselm's Proslogion, um, we find that it's seen as kind of a justice issue, that since we offend, since humanity offended God, and we can only repay on the level of, of what we did, that only God could compensate for, for, the, uh, for the crime committed against him. And therefore, Jesus had to die as a, as a way of reestablishing reconciliation between God and humanity from the viewpoint of justice. I think there's a deeper look at it. And, and I know that people do struggle then sometimes with what they consider to be the harshness or the callousness of the Father, um, saying, you know, I demand that my son die in order that I be satisfied. I think that is a real problem, and I think that we we can't just do that and then walk away from the story and say, you know, this is our God, the one who allowed his own son to die for our sake, for his sake, basically, to reestablish justice. I know that I've read that in different places, and uh, and I, I think it's a very inadequate explanation of what transpired. Because what actually transpired is that Jesus is revealing to us actually what it means to love. And that doesn't mean that to love has to be painful, suffering, uh, even leading unto death. But love demands sacrifice. And love demands great sacrifice, ripping it right out of the soul of each human person. And that uh, even Jeremiah says, nothing is more torturous than the human heart. How many people suffer their greatest suffering, really, down deep inside of themselves in their heart, where they have to sacrifice and give away of the self for the sake of others, for the sake of another. And that Jesus' sacrifice, therefore, is a sacrifice of love. And I think that the old, that the, the story of the Passion can very easily be considered a, a love story, a story of someone who went through willingly the things that Jesus went through and died for the reason Jesus died, out of love for others. I think that um, it, it's really in every little element of the story, if we think of every little element of the story, the people who he is dying for are the ones who are abusing him, the ones who are screaming crucify him, uh, the ones who hand him over, um, all of those. He is. He, he has... He is responsible for their existence. They only exist because of him, because of his benevolence and his goodness. And so at the heart of this love story is the story of the quintessential and the ultimate betrayal of that love. And I think that there are many people who have experienced the betrayal of love, and they know the pain of that. Um, they know how much they suffer because of that. And yet, and Jesus did the same. He, that this, the sadness he must have felt when his own people were trying to kill him. And the absolute insult, for instance, in that when Pilate gives them a choice between, between the, the freeing Jesus or free, freeing Barabbas, 
And uh, the name Barabbas is really significant. It's very important because what it means is Bar Abbas, the son of the father, which means that he is a false messiah and that he is a violent messiah, that he is the very thing that the Romans feared, that someone who was to lead insurrections and overthrow the government and so forth. We find the Barabbas spirit alive in many ways. I I remember that um, there was a stinging criticism of Mother Teresa by the uh, by a group of of women religious. I don't remember what the what the what the letters are that identify them as a group, but they were criticizing her because she was taking care of the poor rather than overthrowing the Indian government, and uh, and and and. I think that that this is the spirit of Barabbas. We want we want violence. We want um, we want political action. We want all that kind of stuff from our Messiah. And Jesus refused to give that to them because it was inauthentic. Because it was not done out of love. That was done out of out of all sorts of of things. Maybe a sense of justice, but a very a, a very twisted sense of justice. But certainly out of anger and of hatred and of uh, self righteousness and all those kinds of things, which are very unattractive characters characteristics. And uh, <clears throat> so yes, so when we began to read the Passion, I think that what we have to do is realize this is a story of someone giving us everything that he had. And what he had was incredible because he was not only human, but he was also divine. So it was a person, human and divine, emptying himself for the sake of our salvation, our reconciliation with the Father, so that we might learn the deeper meanings of our own lives that we might come to understand those emotions and those feelings that we are able to have for others and understand that they must go deeper and deeper and deeper into the very core of our personhood to where, if we truly love someone, we would be willing to go through for them what Jesus has gone through for, with us, for us. We will not accept it in the way that he does. We can't um, because we, we are only human but we can accept it to the point that's possible. And while it might be deeply painful and deeply, deeply hurtful, it is nevertheless a gift, a gift of love to for the well-being of another. To suffer for suffering's sake makes little, little sense. To suffer for the sake of others makes enormous amounts of sense because that is the most effective way that we can contribute to their well-being and to their salvation, actually. So when Jesus now, when we begin now to enter into this story of, uh, of Jesus' trial, um, is, you can see in it there, there is no justice, there is no procedural rules, there is nothing. Um, that would indicate in any way, shape, or form that this was kind of a, 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 an, an event in conjunction with certainly Roman law and, and in honesty, not even Jewish law. Although the Jewish law was, was harsh with sinners, um, <clears throat> nevertheless, Jesus was no sinner. And they had to find a way then to accuse him of something. 
And so they made up their testimonies before the high priests, as we remember. And they said, why harm has this man done? Pilate says, I found no cause against him that deserves death. But they kept on shouting at the top of their voices, demanding that he should be crucified. And their shouts were growing louder. Pilate gave his verdict. Their demand was to be granted. He released the man they asked for, Barabbas, who had been in prison for rioting and for murder, and handed Jesus over to them to deal with them as they please. So that Pilate then, under pressure from the crowd, gives in to their demands, even though he says, this is unjust, There's, he's done nothing wrong. And I think that this is a way to emphasize to us <clears throat> that we, when, when we, pers- and, and I think we interpret this in line of our own suffering, we can say to ourselves, you know, un- unlike Jesus, I probably deserve some of this. I deserve this as an opportunity for for uh, atonement for my sins. I deserve this as an opportunity to uh, offer my suffering for the sake of others. I can use this suffering as an act of love by by applying its merits, asking the Lord to apply the merits of accepting the suffering into the lives of others and to bring them healing of body, of soul, mind, whatever it is. And that can be very, very effective for us. But never will the gift be as total and complete. Never will we rise above the sufferings that we have in order, in order um, to not ourselves in some way be afflicted by them as well. So that the story of the passion for us, and we certainly can't go through it piece by piece, but the story of the passion itself for us is the story of our own salvation, our own redemption. It is the story of how Jesus went about and redeeming us through love and not necessarily through justice. And that his love story of the passion is a close and a deep example for us as to how we handle the misfortunes of our own life, whether we deserve them or don't deserve them, how we offer that suffering up for the sake of others, that they too may be healed um, bodily, spiritually, however, mentally, and that in that healing that we therefore join ourselves with the suffering Lord in order to bring about a restoration and a redemption of humanity we, in small pieces, Jesus universally. We, reluctantly, Jesus willingly. We, with, met, with mitigated results, Jesus with the result of the redemption of the world. Nevertheless, to be part of that is to be part of the deepest reality of human existence. And to be part of that is to be part of the mystery of God. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.